0: Hey, it's one o'clock. You're listening to KOWS 107.3 FM in Occidental, California. We have Nora Gidgoudis on the line. Is this correct?
1: Uh, yes, you are correct.
0: Uh, welcome, Nora. I'm very, very, very happy to have you uh, willing to uh, join me on the show.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm, uh, I'm very uh, honored that you, that you asked. So it's definitely a pleasure to be here today.
0: Well, you have uh, thrust yourself into our lives with this <laughs> with this magnificent book. It's well, called, thank you. It's called Primal Body, Primal Mind, and um, and I can't say enough about it. It is uh, it's already uh, made a, made a, a, a major impact in my education and in my Understanding of how I can be stronger, happier, healthier, and so can my friends and neighbors and family and all of us. So, thank you.
1: Well, you're very welcome, and um, I'm just I'm extremely flattered. Um, that's a wonderful uh, those are wonderful, wonderful words, and I thank you for them.
0: <laughs> well, uh, I mean every one of them. Uh, I'm not just saying it. It's uh, it's a great accomplishment and. Uh, i 'm i'm deeply impressed at how you have uh, educated yourself how you have studied and uh, synthesized and integrated and sifted through probably mountains of of information to uh really panning for gold i suppose
1: yeah I, I think i didn't um overly subject myself to preconceived um, um, ideas as is the case in um, you know, and sort of the conventional education and nutrition and all of that, um, I started out with a lot of that you know twenty five or more years ago but um, but since then uh, you know have sort of gotten disillusioned with the with a conventional way of looking at things and um, you know sought to really kind of uh, start looking outside the box. I think when I came across the whole uh, idea of looking at this from an evolutionary standpoint, uh, that opened some major uh, doors uh, for me, and uh, it gave me a complete shift in my thinking and in my logic base. Because, of course, anything that wouldn't have been around, um, well, I mean, it just stands to reason that, that the very the very things that would have established our physiological requirements, the, the the sorts of selective pressures and things over, you know, a couple million or more years, um, it makes sense to look at what kinds of things would have been available to us during our earliest evolution and throughout uh, to determine where our... Um, where biological requirements are going to be.
0: And it's like, who are we? Who are right. we really?
1: Right, exactly. What are
0: we actually?
1: Right, and it, it helps to sift through a great deal because if some newfangled uh, food substance or, or something purporting to be a food substance, something that's synthesized or food that is very new to us, um, comes along and, and is purported to be the, the latest and greatest thing, you know that doesn't necessarily make a whole heck of a lot of sense uh, from that uh, from that sort of Paleolithic standpoint. Um, it, it, in my mind, and like I like I'm always saying on my radio show, if it's something that wouldn't look like food to somebody who was wandering around forty thousand years ago with a loincloth and a spear, it's probably not food for us now either.
0: Right. We have not changed that much.
1: No, we really, really haven't. Um, we're still um, extremely primitive uh, in, in terms of our genetic makeup. Uh, and, and really, uh, food has changed so dramatically and continues to change on such an ongoing basis that it's become a virtually impossibility for us to adapt to what's happening with our food supply now. Mm-hmm. Um, by most geneticists' standards, it takes anywhere from forty to 100,000 years, depending on who you talk to, really, uh, for our genetics to really catch up to major changes. And, uh, you know, one big m- major change, you know, of course, was the agricultural revolution. You know, and everybody talks about that being 10, 12,000 years ago. Well, it depends on where you were. And in in most areas in Europe that, you know, agriculture was not really widely adopted until, uh, you know, a couple thousand years ago. And Mm. even then, uh, again, people were still consuming as many animal source foods as were available to them at that time. So um, anyway, it's, it's the kind of thing that, you know, we're still struggling to adapt to that. And then we have the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> you know, we have World War II. Everything happening there. We have, you know, um, monoculture, monoculture agriculture move into things. We have, you know, the food industry basically creating a newfangled Frankenfood uh, every other day of the week. And it's just it's it's genetic confusion for us. We have no way of adapting to a lot of these foods yes and um it's,
0: gr- it's grotesque well it is and we've become grotesque
1: um you said it i didn't
0: i'll say it again we're, <laughs> we're we the, the the food uh the industrial food industry has uh done a pretty good job of decimating uh the normal natural good abundant robust health of the uh population
1: right you know and and as, as this occurs and as each subsequent generation is challenged by these things, it makes it harder for the next generation um, to adapt. It, it, it puts the, uh, each subsequent generation at a, at a, at a progressive disadvantage. And right now, I think we're at a place. I mean, this is, of course, my hypothesis. There are certainly some things in in my book, and I think it's pretty clear where this comes up. That I'm hypothesizing based on the information that that I've that I found that we really are at a stage in you know in our development uh, um, in our genome where we really just don't have any room for error anymore. We can't afford. I think some of the indulgences that our grandparents and great grandparents enjoyed, um, you know, some time back, we're really kind of at a place where we have to maximize our, um, our efforts to remain healthy. And reaching for health on any level is difficult enough. Optimal health has become a real challenge, you know, an almost extreme challenge. Yes. Um, we're exposed to innumerable uh chemicals and hormonal uh like substances uh and we're exposed to uh you know electromagnetic pollution things i mean we're exposed to so many things our most ancient ancestors never could have imagined uh, never could have uh you know even begun to fathom uh... we're we have depleted soils we have uh... raging deficiencies in in so many nutrients that are so fundamental uh... to our health and well-being uh... just simply because these things are no longer either in the soils or in the food supply or we have too many things competing for them in the food supply Um and even things like meat which kind of seems you know meat sort of seems like a cut and dried thing but it's not at all. Uh, the quality of the meat most people are buying at conventional grocery stores is something that our primitive ancestors probably wouldn't have recognized that, that well either. Um, we're talking about meat from animals that have been raised in extremely unnatural environments, shot full of hormones and antibiotics, and fed every manner of, um, uh, of chemical substance. I mean, even things like cement dust and gum wrappers. Uh, I kid you not. Yeah. Uh, to try to get their weight up um, and fed a lot of grains, which by the way is not a natural food for cattle uh and what you end up with is a product that might look like something that looked like meat to our ancestors, but in terms of its chemical composition and and the makeup of the kinds of fats that were present in you know, that are present in it there 's no resemblance whatsoever, and so um you know, so then the quest becomes, you know, how can you find uh, organic, biodynamically, you know, raised p- pasture-fed and finished, you know, grass-fed and finished meats? Uh, and it, it's becoming easier to find some of that stuff. Uh, it's it's out there, and there are farmers increasingly working really hard trying to do the right thing, attempting to raise their animals in a humane manner, Uh on foods that are much more natural to them, out in fresh air and sunshine, uh, but of course you pay a premium price for that.
0: Well, it's a price that's uh, uh, in in the short term it 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 may it, it well in the short term it is a premium price, but right. once you begin to ad- adapt to uh, this new knowledge, uh, I found my food costs are going down. Yes, because that, yeah, sorry. no, because I'm eating. Uh, my whole orientation toward food and and uh, nutrition uh, has has been um, uh, noticeable. Has been has been um, it's it's marvelous. It's <laughs> it's uh, just as a, a personal testament. Uh, I like like most people, like most people, I was uh, seri- and I didn't know it. I was uh, seriously uh, addicted to carbohydrates, and uh, virtually uh, eliminating them or bringing them down to a, a very very low roar. Um, I've been I've been set free of these cravings, and uh, I'm eating less, and I'm losing weight. And my my blood work is is showing uh, significant improvement, and it just feels good, and I'm enjoying my food like never before, and it's all become pretty basic and simple.
1: Yeah.
0: And uh, and and when I look back at how I was eating only a year ago, or two years ago, or five years ago, or through my whole life, uh, it's it's you know, one can only be grateful. You know, better late than never.
1: Right. It's true. It really is. As long as you're above ground, it's really never too late. I mean, uh, you know, we can have all kinds of, you know, problems and conditions, but um, it's never too late uh, to start trying to turn this, uh, to turn your health around. Um, the human body is just it, it, is, am, is an amazing, amazing, uh, glorious machine that, um um Glorious sort of biological uh, organism that is able to uh, do incredible things as long as it has the raw materials it needs in you know to work with. I think that you know the point that you're making too, though, about the the economics of this is is a wonderful one, and and there are a couple different ways of looking at it. For starters, uh, statistically, ninety cents out of every Food dollars spent in this country is actually spent on processed food. So once you eliminate that, suddenly now you've eliminated 90 cents out of every dollar you normally spend. Of course, you can turn around and take that savings and apply it toward um, much more nutrient-dense, much more healthful food. That you know your ancestors might actually have recognized as being food. Exactly. But the other piece, of course, in in my book that um, that I go that I talk about at some length, has to do with the fact that not only has the 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 quality of the food that we've that we consume in modern times uh, changed pretty radically and pretty dramatically, but also the quantity. We have this unnatural access to this unnatural abundance of food or stuff that we think of as food, and because we're still basically primitive beings in terms of our genetic makeup, you know, out in the wild, it's all feast or famine, so the natural inclination is to eat what you can while you can. But of course, when there is an endless supply of food and where you can go through that buffet line six times and fill up your plate, you know, uh, even where people don't, you know, seem to have uh, very much money to spend on food or whatever, they still, uh, the, what they think of as a meal is is mountains of food on the plate. Uh, this has become kind of a norm for us. And um you know, as, it, as it turns out, we don't need anywhere near as much food as most of us consume in order to satisfy our appetites, in order to meet our basic nutritional requirements. I think nutrient density is extremely important. In other words, the foods that we eat, they should be naturally nutrient dense. And I, I, I'm speaking in terms of most um, most animal source foods, most quality grown organic biodynamic vegetable source foods, eggs, fish, things like that. Um when you get into things like breads and pastas and, you know, um uh, even things like potatoes which people think of as is such a natural food, it actually uh, potatoes aren't that natural for us. They're fairly modernly um genetically sort of modified uh, for our consumption, but potatoes are almost pure starch. They have very, very little nutritional value in them at all. Um, right. So it's- most of the sugar and starch-based foods that that most people rely on as their primary fuel are fairly uh, par- fairly thin in the nutrient department. Um, which may be one reason why people feel the need to eat so much because they're not meeting their nutritional requirements and they're starving themselves into obesity. <laughs> um, in that regard, so when you stick to much denser uh, food, um, you're satisfied with a heck of a lot less. And like my dinner last night, it was a uh, people are always asking, "Well, what do you eat?" <laughs> well, I had a part of a uh, leftover uh, beautiful grass fed ribeye steak and and i you know slice it into slices nice and rare and um and it was maybe 2 to 3 ounces worth and i sauteed a bunch of onions and shiitake mushrooms in in butter and poured that over it and then i had a big heaping mountain of steamed you <laughs> know broccolini with a little bit of butter drizzled over that and i'm here to tell you it was well, for one thing, <laughs> you know the kind of meal where your eyes roll into the back of your head. I mean, it was wonderful, um, and I, you know, I was not hungry afterwards. Um, and the whole thing, you know, the it was not an expensive meal. It was simple as simple gets to prepare. Um, you know, I do have recipes on on my website, and I and I'm happy to say I've recently uh, uh, connected up with a. Uh, uh, with a wonderful author uh, who's who's created a cookbook that is, in some measure inspired uh, by my book. So, uh, and it's called Whole Food uh, Cuisine uh, by Polly Halstead. Anyway, I was really please. happy to see her come along because, you know, what I make for my meals is is you know could be considered kind of boring for a lot of people. My my breakfast this morning consisted of a, a one single duck egg cooked in butter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was it, uh, um, you know, and, uh, and in fact, you know, after as soon as I'm done here, I'll go out scraping around for something uh, to have for lunch, but it's not going to be more than a few bites of anything, uh, probably nothing too inspirational. Um, I, I love to eat, and, and I've always loved to eat, but I find that I'm busy enough that I don't typically have time to prepare things that are too terribly exciting. Um, I can make a pot of chili on on a sunday and and you know have that for lunch um, you know for the rest of the week and uh, you know it 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 i, I don 't get too fancy with it, but there are ways of making the kind of eating i 'm talking about really delicious and and really interesting and uh'm i 'm thankful that Polly Halstead has come along to uh, uh to help with that
0: because... <laughs> Will you spell Halstead?
1: Yeah, H-A-L-S-T-E-A-D. Right.
0: I find that I, I don't really eat meals so much anymore as I just eat food. And 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 it's one of these things. I, I suspect that you, you don't really get it until you actually do it, until you start to do it. Yep. Because, uh, you know... Uh, is it is it boring? Is it is it not so? You know, the, the it's not high cuisine, and there's not a lot of uh, necessarily a lot of great creativity in the dish, and all of this sort of thing. But once you start eating um, good, simple, whole, good food, yeah, it's delicious. It's satisfying, and um, you know, there's, there's, what more could you want?
1: Well, and 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 it keeps you going for a long period of time, yeah. and, and this, and this is the other uh, part to the. Oh, I just found uh, it's cuisine for whole health. By the way, mm. uh, Polly's book you can find it at CuisineForWholeHealth.com. dot com. So, Good. There you go. Good. Sorry about that. I just no. uh, had, no? I had blanked out on on the exact name
0: well it's it's all corrected now okay have you <laughs> uh, have you come across lear keith's book yet
1: uh i i have come across it. i have not had a chance to uh read it yet but i'm excited to
0: yeah i think you'll uh i think you'll really appreciate it i think it's a monumental book and uh i look forward to the two of you uh getting together sometime yeah
1: i'm, I'm actually very much hoping hoping to do that yeah, it's um but part of what I was about to say uh before I distracted myself um, was when it when you come to look at food um, strictly from the standpoint of how it fuels your body, so you know if you look at carbohydrates, fats, and proteins um, strictly in terms of the fuel that they impart, you can look upon. Uh, well, of course, carbohydrates are a couple of different things. You know, uh, fibrous vegetables are also carbohydrates, but they're, that's a different category of carbohydrate. Um, there's not a whole lot of fuel value in uh, in uh, fibrous vegetables, per se, not a lot of caloric content. But if we're talking about sugar and starch, so with respect to things like, say, whole grains and brown rice and, and things of that nature, what we're actually looking at, with that is we're we're looking at a form of kindling. We're looking at basically twigs, you know, twigs and bark. You know, when we're talking about whole grains, if we're talking about bread or pasta or potatoes and things of that nature, we're actually more so talking about uh throwing paper on the fire. And if we're talking about something like alcohol, well, we're basically talking about gasoline on the fire there, you know, wine and beer and that kind of a thing. Um But when it comes to something like fat, what you're talking about is a great big log on the fire. And I don't know whether you've ever tried to heat your home with a wood stove. Um, I do have a wood stove at home uh, I'm very fond of. Um, What I know is that if I were to try to heat my home, which is what you can kind of think of as your basic metabolism your basal metabolic rate is sort of your your internal furnace
0: it's called your body you know,
1: the energy you know the engine pardon me pardon me
0: yes it's called your body yeah well
1: right <laughs> exactly um and all the metabolic processes happening in it um that if you were to try to heat your home with nothing but twigs paper and lighter fluid um or gasoline uh you'd You'd be a slave to that fire. You would have to be constantly thinking mm-hmm. about where that next wad of paper was coming from. You know where you were going to get some twigs. Where you were going to, you know. And if the fire got went out too far, you might be running around looking, you know, for to add uh, another splash of lighter fluid onto the thing, mm-hmm. uh, because <laughs> you're never going to be able to go very far away um, or get very far away from thinking about yeah. feeding that fire. Yeah. But if instead you have the presence of mind to put a nice big log on the fire and you're you allow yourself to come to a place of depending upon just adding another log to the fire when when you need to add to the fire suddenly you've got a life you're not uh you're not enslaved to that stove uh you know you can go out and do things you can and you can think about other things um, you can even get through a night's sleep and that is you know, very analogous, I think, to whether or not you have metabolically adapted yourself to being a sugar burner in life or a fat burner. Mm-hmm. These are the two pr- kinds of fuel that our bodies are designed to burn. Most people have the, in fact, even most medical professionals have the basic fundamental belief that glucose is our primary source of fuel. Um, that's only true if you are metabolically adapted to depending on sugar as your primary so- source of fuel. But if, on the other hand, you go to what is a much more natural state for us, um, which is depending on fat is that primary source of fuel, which makes a whole lot more sense. I mean, the day I figured this out and I made that connection, it was, you know, the, you've seen the V8 commercials and the guy f- slapping himself in the head. It was... A little like that, if not a sack of wet cement between the eyes. It's like, well, of course, duh. Nature never would have been so stupid as to force us to be dependent upon something so volatile, yeah. something so damaging and oxidizing to our system as glucose um, on an ongoing basis. When it, what, what, glucose basically is, is our body's version of rocket fuel. It's what mm. we is what we burn in an emergency you're getting chased by a saber-toothed tiger or a cantankerous woolly mammoth, by golly, you better have some rocket fuel available because you're going to need that to fuel your escape or if you need to chase something down, you know, whatever. Um, That's what glucose is for. It's that backup fuel. It's the rocket boosters when we need them. But do you really need rocket fuel just to drive down to the, you know, corner market to (laughs) pick up whatever or go about... You know the you know the basic uh, balance of your day. No, of course not. And glucose is also an anaerobic fuel. Again, it's designed to be utilized in a state of high exertion, of peak effort. Um, whereas whereas fat, on the other hand, is an aerobic fuel. It's burned in the presence of oxygen. Uh, it's best. It's it's most burned most efficiently in, in the presence of oxygen. And for most of what we do, most of the day, we're breathing normally, we're not panting, and um, it makes sense that ketones and fatty free fatty acids would would make much more efficient source of fuel that way. plus you know we store them efficiently, um, they have much, many more uh, well, on average more calories per gram uh, that's a whole other topic um but in general, fats tend to have more calories per gram than carbohydrates do, and we store. I mean, most people don't store more than about, in all their glycogen stores uh, throughout the body, more than maybe 2,000 calories or so worth of carbohydrate-based fuel. Um, in other words, we don't store it very efficiently, and we tend to burn it off rather rapidly. Our body does what it can to burn it off quickly, because it is so potentially damaging. So it and needs um, so our body has an obsession with maintaining the lowest necessary level of blood glucose at any given time. Fat, on the other hand, even the most slender person probably has enough fat stored throughout their body to be able to fuel them uh, for close to a month. I'm not saying they'd be happy being fueled by their body fat stores for close to a month. But you could do it. there's enough fat present for that, and it makes sense that our body would rely on something that you know was able to be stored a lot more efficiently and was a lot more readily available and was more even burning um, a lot more efficiently burned um, and um and so the trick is to train your body to learn to come to depend upon fat as your primary source of fuel and you do that basically by taking carbohydrates out of the equation to the extent possible take sugar and starch out of the diet you know leave You just right. you know Start. get rid of the bread the pasta the potatoes the rice um, all you know even beans by the way are about sixty percent starch um, try to kind of get rid of these things the juices or whatever i even pretty much keep fruit to a minimum. Um, mm-hmm. I had a handful of pomegranate seeds earlier today, so there, there you go. But uh, it's not the kind of thing that um, I eat uh, a lot of. And, um, and instead, in a, and I eat a fairly moderate amount of protein. It turns out our RDA isn't more than about six or seven ounces of, of complete, in other words, animal source protein a day. And uh, so maybe a couple ounces per meal. And then you utilize fat, as much fat as you need to satisfy your appetite, uh, to fill the rest in. And when you do that, because fat is the one macronutrient that truly has the capacity to satisfy appetite, it's the hormone leptin that controls our appetite, that decides whether hunting is good or not, and it's basically a fat sensor. So when you give your body adequate amounts of fat, um, it says, "Okay, hunting's decent. We've got enough. We can afford to expend energy because we have enough energy coming in." So therefore, your body tends to not hang on to excess weight, and because you're because you come to depend upon fat as your primary source of fuel, you learn to utilize fat very efficiently. Your energy levels are constant; they're even. They don't fluctuate throughout the day. Um, like I said, I had a duck egg at seven o'clock this morning. Um, I had a handful of pomegranate seeds a couple of hours ago, but it was just because they were there and they looked yummy. Uh, but I wasn't really uh, particularly hungry then. And you know, you know, this afternoon I'm going to be hungry. You know, it, it's mm-hmm. but. But it's, I'm it's not good. going to be dizzy, I'm not going to be cranky, I'm not going to be brain-fogged or irritable or whatever, the way a lot of people get when their, quote-unquote, blood sugar gets too low. Blood sugar is the kind of thing that is possible to remove from your mood and cognitive equation, and that is part of the goal uh, with um, with the dietary approach that I write about.
0: Right. I'm... Um, um. I'm particularly interested in, uh, well, just it bears repeating, uh, grains are, are, are starch, starch right. is sugar, right. and uh, so we, we, uh, we're acclimated to burning sugar, and, right. we, and it needs to be replenished uh, almost constantly because yep. it doesn't store very well or for very long, and it's uh, cheap fuel for right. the engine. Right. So we want to become fat burners.
1: Right, and it's cheap in the short term, you know. In other words, well, you know, yeah, it doesn't necessarily, you know, cost that much to have a little oatmeal for breakfast or whatever. But, um, but you have to look at the long-term costs. You're going to be needing. You're not getting a lot of nutrient density out of out of uh, out of cereal for breakfast. And uh, you know what? What do most nutritionists tell people? Um, they'll tell them, well, don't ever skip breakfast and eat every couple of hours and be sure to snack throughout the day and all that kind of thing. You're constantly having to throw the kindling, you know, onto the fire. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so what seems inexpensive on the surface of things um, over the long haul, just in terms of food costs, can be quite expensive um, because you're, you're constantly, you know, you're looking at more of a volume of food uh and you're having to think about food more frequently. But the other part of the equation is the long term costs in terms of your health care. Um we know that that um gosh, on just so many levels carbohydrates are a source of so many problems uh for us and um are probably uh you know behind most chronic and degenerative diseases uh we know the grains are very highly associated with neurological disorders attentional problems you know cognitive dysfunction um you know brain lesions autoimmune disorders uh cancers all kinds of things uh gluten sensitivity has become a rampant problem um 50 times more uh you know you know more more common today than it than it was um uh, 50 times i know that That the incidence of celiac disease is many, many times more common today than it was just 50 years ago. Uh, they did, they did a study. They found some old blood samples from, uh, from the, you know, military and, and they were looking at some of these markers and there are more of them today. And that would be in keeping with the theory that we're just less tolerant of, of things today than, uh, than we once were.
0: Right. If we're going to be uh, virtually, uh, if we're going to cut way back on our carbs, uh, how can we eat? uh, I find myself uh, eating a lot of protein and making sure that I eat a good amount of fat with it.
1: Right. But my
0: my understanding is that there's a real real possibility I'm eating too much protein, but I don't really know what to eat. Uh, uh, You know, I... I don't know how to eat fat other than, uh, you know, butter and coconut oil and, and the, the fat that's uh, contained in, in good meat.
1: Right, right. So you, you seek out some of the fattier cuts of meat, and instead of, uh, you know, chicken breast, maybe you look at a, you know, you're looking at uh, dark meat, which tends to be a little richer in fat. You know, leave the skin on. Hallelujah for that. Right, right. That's <laughs> the best part. Um, um, you know, use... Uh, butter and coconut oil and tallow and things to saute things in. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't end up having to add, I mean, we're not talking about drinking lard here and trying to find a million different ways to add fat into the food. Um, naturally occurring fat in naturally, um, you know, fat-rich, healthy cuts of meat, like from grass-fed sources and whatever. There's, there's a lot of omega-3 in, uh, uh in grass-fed meat. Um, there are a lot of essential fats and things, a uh, huge variety of fats present. In uh, in naturally raised meats, so it's it's all good stuff, Um, and we need some saturated fat. It 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 has a role to play in our health, and it has uh, this you know so much of the perception of saturated fat as being a bad thing are based on studies that were actually looking at the effects of trans fats, and uh, that uh, that distinction between saturated fat and trans fat. Was blurred for most of that, uh, most of the early years of that of, of that research, and in fact, when you separate them out and you look at them uh, independent of one another, they actually have opposite effects on the body. And I have a section of my book that I that I talk about um, the basic. Um, I can actually read some of these here. The, there's, a, there's a page in my book that talks about a quick comparison of the biological effects of saturated fatty acids versus trans fatty acids, just for the heck of it. And saturated fats will actually raise HDL, uh, you know, quote-unquote cholesterol. It's not really cholesterol, but we think of it as a form of cholesterol, the so-called good cholesterol, whereas trans fatty acids actually lower HDL. Saturated fatty acids lower blood levels of atherogenic lipoprotein little a. Uh, which is, which is a lipoprotein that has been associated with cardiovascular disease. Whereas trans fatty acids raise the blood levels of lipoprotein little a. Saturated fatty acids conserve the good omega-3 fatty acids. They actually help your body transport and utilize them properly. Whereas trans fatty acids will cause the tissues to lose these omega-3 fatty acids. Saturated fatty acids do not inhibit insulin binding, whereas trans fatty acids do inhibit insulin binding saturated fatty acids are the normal fatty acids made by the body they do not interfere with enzyme functions such as well this gets technical but delta-60 saturates whereas uh, trans fatty acids are not made by the body and interfere with many enzyme functions uh... some saturated fatty acids are used by the body to fight viruses bacteria and protozoa as they support the immune system which is a major concern for a lot of people right now with the whole h1n1 thing Whereas trans fatty acids interfere with the function of the immune system. So those are just a few, uh, uh, a few little factoids we speak, around saturated we speak fat.
0: Of, uh, when we speak of trans fatty acids, we're mostly talking about uh, vegetable oils.
1: We're talking about uh, hydrogenated and partially hydrogenated vegetable oils, margarines, spreads. Uh, we're talking about vegetable shortening. We're talking about uh, trans fats are found in the majority of processed foods. By the way, all commercial canola oil, all commercial soybean oil, are partially hydrogenated as part of their deodorization process. So even though it doesn't say trans fat on the label, um, you can assume if you see soybean oil or canola oil on the label, unless it says organic, expeller-pressed, that you're looking at some trans-fat content um, in those oils. And, um, you know, I mean, consider these oils are really, really, really new to us. And we think of them as natural because they come from things that grow out of the ground. But our ancestors certainly never would have thought to take a sunflower seed and mash it up and try to squeeze a little drop of oil out of it and then fry something in it. Um, They would have eaten the seed. No, I mean, things like canola oil or, or canola seeds, those, those aren't food to us. That's a commercial crop that is grown to produce this oil that is inex- extremely inexpensive, um, you know, for the industry to use. And then they can partially hydrogenate it to extend shelf life uh, and keep it from getting overly smelly because it does have a lot of... Uh, polyunsaturates in it that are prone to being becoming rancid very, very quickly. And something about the canola seed that most seeds contain a significant amount of vitamin E to help preserve the oil that's in the seed in a way to keep it from, you know, to keep it stable, to keep it from going rancid. For some unusual reason, there is uh, inherent in the canola seed just not very much vitamin E at all. So canola is much more prone than uh, most uh, seed oils, actually, to going rancid very quickly, and that's another reason why they hydrogenate it.
0: Right. I remember distinctly when canola oil came into the market, how it was, how it was touted as a, a much, much healthier oil.
1: Right. Right. Because it contained a certain amount of oleic acid, which is the stuff that you get in olive oil, so they realized that... When I started promoting olive oil as the be-all and end-all of healthy oils, I mean, it, in my mind, olive oil is okay. Um, I have it on salads. I never cook with it because I it just has too low smoking point for me to feel comfortable putting it in a pan and exposing it directly to heat. Um, but I'll use it in salads and to flavor things. Um, but, you know, it's okay. It's not how good for you olive oil is. It's how bad for you it isn't it's it's in a very mm. abundant uh those monounsaturated fats are extremely abundant in our food supply and they seem to be pretty neutral in the scheme of things and so they're promoted as quote unquote healthy when in fact they don't necessarily do that much although they are very long chain and as such um tend to have a higher uh caloric content and if you consume excess excesses of uh fats they are more likely to be stored than, say, the fat that you would get in butter, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, Interestingly, too, uh, for people that are fat-phobic, you know, butter, well, Mm. olive oil, you know, where you go to these restaurants and they'll have like a little dish of olive oil instead of butter because that's supposed to be the healthier alternative. Well, that olive oil is 100% fat, whereas, you know, uh, butter is not. It does have some other, uh, you know, solids in it and things like that. But the the shorter chain fats in butter, uh, butyric acid, for instance, have wonderful antimicrobial effects. They serve as a food for the uh, cells in the colon, which is actually the preferred food for colon cells is butyric acid. Mm. Uh, in theory, our healthy bacteria are supposed to be able to manufacture that food for our colon cells, but m- many people, because of antibiotic use and so many things that we're exposed to in our environment, uh don't have good healthy bacteria in their gut uh or enough of it so uh dietary butyric acid can have some beneficial effect on on the colon in fact um and the short chain fats and butter again are tend to be preferentially burned for energy and actually are not stored uh very well as energy at all they tend to get burned a lot like carbohydrates get burned pretty quickly they bypass the gallbladder and uh and um tend to get oxidized pretty rapidly. So that's you know, even, that's even more fun facts.
0: Even good quality uh pasteurized butter is uh I mean that's pretty much what 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 we're reduced to uh to buying. It's hard to get raw butter.
1: It yeah, well you in California there now, you you know, yeah. raw 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 organic pastured butter and you guys have the uh um well. not organic valley, uh
0: yeah. Yeah. Uh, organic oh, something hopefully I'll remember pastures, uh, uh, something. Organic like, pastures, yeah, yes. Yeah.
1: Those guys uh they they do an incredible job. They produce an incredible uh raw uh milk uh product line and it's certified organic and it's totally legal where you are.
0: Yeah, I'm not uh, sure. I heard that they, they mostly use Holsteins and that if you can get Jersey milk or or Guernsey milk you're better off but uh
1: well, Jersey milk tends to be uh, milk from Jersey cows. Is by far the highest in fat content. Yeah. But I can tell you that it, we have a dairy uh,
0: called Claravale who uh, sells us raw uh, Jersey milk.
1: Well, that's great. Yeah. You know, so you have access to that stuff down there. Yeah, we're um,
0: we're ahead of the curve.
1: You are, um, and there are other are other states in which it's all you know perfectly legal. Now, here in in Oregon, if you have somebody trying to sell uh, raw milk, under most circumstances, um, you know, they're they're treated as, as criminals. Right. So,
0: we had Pete Kennedy of the uh, Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund uh, on earlier in the show. And, oh, wonderful! Uh, they're doing great work.
1: It's um, really important work because I think yeah. raw, uh, pastured, in other words, raw milk uh, from cows raised on nothing but grass is is potentially a real food source for people who are not sensitive to casein. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a sensitivity to casein, so I can't do conventional bovine milk products, but I do seem to be able to get away with a certain amount of butter and heavy cream, which are of course nearly 100% fat. A uh, nearly pure fat. So, um so you know, those are that's a whole other yeah, a whole other yeah. aspect yeah, this of the equation. But if you're going to be consuming milk, it should be from the least processed uh, sources possible. Right. And, you know, obviously, you want to make sure that you're getting it from from a safe and certified source.
0: Right. Know know your cow.
1: Exactly. <laughs>
0: uh, you know, before I read your book, I had never heard of leptin. Yes. Will you speak about leptin, please?
1: Sure. Well, leptin is. It, it's a hormone that was really only discovered in about the mid-1990s or so. And um, it turns out that it, you know, they, they never really had discovered it before because they never really thought to look for it in the place in our body which actually produces it, which is our adipocytes, our fat cells. And prior to the discovery of leptin, fat was sort of thought to be this ugly, you know, unsightly sort of mass of excess uh, energy storage in the body that, you know, the less of the better, as it turns out, it is a sophisticated endocrine organ that produces not only leptin, but also a number of other other substances that are necessary uh, for mitigating inflammatory response and all that kind of a thing and leptin functions as a bit of a pro-inflammatory uh cytokine in the body but it's also our body's fundamental uh fat sensor and turns out it's not just another hormone but it may actually be the single most important hormone in the body as it uh, the is as leptin speaks directly to the hypothalamus and controls virtually all functions of the hypothalamus so it's um
0: can, le- can leptin be measured?
1: Yes, it can. You can definitely go uh, and, and get your blood drawn and get your leptin levels looked at, and, and it's not a bad idea to do that, to make sure that you have optimal optimally low levels of it. You, you don't want levels that are too low because then you're going to be hungry all the time, but you don't want levels that are excessively um, high either. Because what you end up with then is, what you're probably looking at if you're looking at extremely high leptin levels is a state of leptin resistance. And it turns out leptin and insulin are kind of birds of a feather. They're very similar in terms of the same things that tend to dysregulate insulin function in the body also tend to dysregulate leptin. The primary thing that seems to dysregulate leptin, again, which is a fat sensor, uh, by large measure, but um, are blood sugar surges. And, mm. um, and so much as, you know, excesses of blood sugar tend to dysregulate insulin over time, um, the same thing tends to happen, uh, with leptin. It will create these fluctuations that eventually sort of numb, uh, in some respects, the hypothalamus to its message. And, um, you know, some of the signs of whether, you are leptin-resistant or not. And if you're leptin-resistant, um, chances are you're going to be overweight. Chances are you're going to feel really fatigued after meals. Uh, you might have love handles. You might have high blood pressure. You're going to be constantly craving comfort foods, uh, feeling consistently anxious or stressed out because leptin and insulin, by the way, also um, uh, surges of, ins- uh, of leptin or insulin also s- also create uh, surges of sympathetic over-arousal. In other words, fight or flight. So if you know somebody who's sort of chronically anxious, you might take a look and see uh, how much of a carbivore they are. Um, Mm. I call it a carbivore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What numbers are we shooting
0: for for leptin?
1: I believe in the ballpark of about six uh, nanograms per milliliter. I, I think that's about the the level that we kind of look upon as being a little bit more uh, optimal. Um, And uh, I can refer people to the wonderful work of Dr. Ron Rosedale, who's probably done more uh, with regard to leptin than just about anybody else out there. Uh, There's also another uh, wonderful book out there that is called uh, Mastering Leptin. Mm. And that book goes into a, whole heck, of a lot of, uh, whole heck of a lot of detail.
0: Right. So this is a good idea for us to get hip to leptin.
1: Yeah. Get, 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 get hip to it because it is, you know, you, you manage it in much the same way that you manage uh, insulin. And if you're going to keep your, you know, carbohydrate levels down, you're not going to be Creating abnormal fluctuations in leptin. And as long as you're eating enough fat to keep leptin happy, then you're not going to be, I mean, leptin will decide whether you're going to eat, whether you need to eat fat, whether you need to burn fat, whether you're going to be hungry or not. I mean, leptin is basically a hormone that, um, that is cued into our basic survival stuff and because the whole idea of whether or not hunting is good is so basic to our fundamental survival and whether or not we um, you know, have energy to put into reproducing or not, for instance, uh, is, is so tied into that, that it, it turns out that it tends to control most of the rest um, of our endocrine system. And if leptin is dysregulated, you're going to have dysregulations down the pike. if leptin's dysregulated, I promise you that your insulin will be dysregulated and if your insulin's dysregulated, mm. your adrenal uh, your adrenals are going to be dysregulated and and uh, and you're going to be at risk for your thyroid becoming dysregulated and your sex hormones becoming dysregulated and on down the pike mm. um, because hormones are like <clears throat> to quote uh one of my favorite physicians, Janet Lang, doctor Janet Lang, you know, hormones they're like a family and they function together and they dysfunction together. And you can't necessarily look at them in an isolated fashion. Yeah. But um, but if you look at again leptin as being fundamentally our body's basic dietary fat sensor. Um, it doesn't look at how much fat you have on your body. It's looking at how much you know, that is, is available uh, in your diet. And, um, and if you are leptin-resistant then your brain is not hearing the message that leptin is trying to tell it, you know, um, then you're just going to kind of keep on being hungry and keep on storing fat. So normalizing leptin has a tendency to normalize appetite.
0: Right. Much to be desired.
1: Yeah, exactly. So we
0: want to burn fat, and ketones are uh, measurements of energy in fat.
1: Yeah, ketones are are the en- can be sort of termed the energy units of fat. Um, and you know, we tend to start to produce uh, you know ketones when carbohydrate sources aren't aren't particularly available. Uh, uh, we go you know our ancestors were all you know nearly all of them in a state of you know uh, you know moderate ketosis all of the time and all that being in ketosis means is that you 're basically burning fat for fuel yeah. and in the beginning, when people uh switch from high carbohydrate diets to to low carbohydrate diets um your body starts producing ketones, but you haven't necessarily become particularly at utilizing them for fuel as yet, and so How you long know does people this take. Well, it's going to vary from individual to individual, based on a number of factors. My experience is that for most people, it's, we're talking about maybe a three to six week period uh, where you're kind of nothing. switching over, making those metabolic conversions from sugar burning to fat burning. Yeah. And initially you're going to find that you're throwing off a lot of uh, ketones, you know, in the urine if you, you know, want to go out and, you know, get some keto sticks from the pharmacist and, you know, and measure that if, you know, I guess everybody needs a hobby. I don't typically bother, <laughs> but, um, but over time that lessens. And initially ketones are treated as a waste product. Eventually your body learns to utilize them. And yeah. virtually every organ and tissue in your body, um, can function just beautifully using um, ketones and also free fatty acids, um, in, including the brain, and it and it's it's so much better a fuel for the brain.
0: Do the we brain still have a, brains? Pardon me. Do we still have brains?
1: Well, well. It's, it's <laughs> now that's a whole other debate. <laughs> yeah. Um. But uh, you know, for people that that have some semblance of. Of brain tissue left, uh, and th- and they want to maintain it. Um, <laughs> you know, learning to depend upon fat as your primary source of fuel is going to be so much more effective at improving the function and the quality of your brain yeah. um, than being a sugar burner ever could be. Yeah. Because you know, sugars basically, the brain doesn't respond very much to insulin, and therefore. The brain is not capable of becoming insulin resistant. One of the positive aspects of insulin resistance is that it's it's also a way of protecting uh, an organ or tissue after a while from glycation, because when you, when there's constant bombardment um, to uh, you know co- constant bombardment by glucose, it's something that causes that you know creates this this chemical reaction where sugars combine with proteins and fats in the body and cause them to become sticky and misshapen and begin to malfunction over time. It's how we age. Yeah. These uh, The things that are formed, the compounds that are formed, are called advanced glycosylation end products, and um, and they age us, and they cause our DNA to mutate, and uh, they do all kinds of nasty things that we would rather they didn't. And um, And, you know... It's hypothesized that the that the liver is typically the first organ to become insulin resistant because the, you know the liver is so Im- important to things, but the brain can't afford to become insulin resistant because your brain constantly has to be able to have access Nora, to all forms of fuel.
0: I'm I'm dead out of time. I wish we uh, had. Sorry. i wish we had another 15 minutes. No apology necessary. Thanks so much for for this. Uh, significant contribution to our well-being.
1: Oh, you're so welcome.
0: Um, I hope to have you on again.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Ken. I really appreciate uh, you inviting me on the show, and I, I've, I've loved being here. So obviously excellent. I love talking about this stuff. Excellent,
0: excellent. Well, I'll be in touch. Sounds great. Thank, thank you, you so, so very much. much. Nora Gedgoudis, the author of Primal Body, Primal Mind. Got to get out of here. See you next week.